Well, over the last several years, Wayside has been a construction zone as we've been doing what we can to expand the parking and uh, accommodate the growth that God has been bringing. And if you've been here, you know you've been watching this take place. An example of laying the parking is before the paving goes in that we see, the things that we actually park on that surface, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work. They have to excavate the ground. They have to clear it away. Forms are then laid. They put in steel or geogrid before the actual pouring of the pavement takes place. And I share this as an illustration because today as we look at Acts chapter 1, what we're going to see today is some of the the behind-the-scenes work that is going on starting in verse 12. Uh, There's some excavation that has to take place. They're clearing away some of the rubble from the past as we're going to look at the betrayal of Judas, one of the original 12 disciples that had to be dealt with. They're going to put in forms. They're going to lay the foundation, the steel, the geogrid, and other things before the actual pouring out of the Holy Spirit takes place that we'll see next week in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church in the day of Pentecost. Now, as we're looking at the things that are taking place, you'll recall that when we left off last time in Acts chapter 1, we saw that the disciples, the the apostles, were gathered together on the Mount of Olives. They were there with Jesus. He gave them the command to uh, go into the world and share the good news of the gospel. And then before he ascended into heaven, he told them, I want you to go into Jerusalem and wait, to wait for the promise that the Father has given, that promise of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. As we pick up today in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, we see them going into Jerusalem. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Now, the mention that it was a Sabbath day journey away doesn't, uh, isn't there to tell us that this was uh, a Saturday, the Sabbath in the Jewish system. Uh, Rather, this was actually a Thursday. We know that from looking at the text. Remember, there had been 40 days of appearances. You had had the resurrection of Jesus, which the scriptures tell us took place on the first day of the week. That's a Sunday. And then we've had the 40 days and now the ascension of Jesus. And in 10 more days will be Pentecost. And what is happening here is Luke, you'll recall, is writing this second letter to a man by the name of Theophilus. We saw in Acts 1-1 that Theophilus was a Roman official. He was the most excellent Theophilus from the Gospel of Luke. And this gentleman is getting some background information. Luke is a historian. He's a doctor, you'll recall. And he's laying the foundation for the readers. Uh, The readers of the Gospels of Luke were Gentiles predominantly, and Luke is writing to a broader audience. And so what he's doing is just giving foundation. If you have never been to Jerusalem, if you've never stood on the Mount of Olives, you don't realize that they're very near to each other. And what he's saying by a Sabbath day journey is just letting people know this was a short hike. The Jewish Mishnah says that the uh, journey a person could do on the Sabbath was 2,000 cubits or what would be about six-tenths of a mile for us. And so Luke is letting the reader know that this is just a short journey into Jerusalem. Uh, They've seen the ascension, they're there, and now they walk into Jerusalem. And verses, uh, it, it tells us that as they go, they go to the upper room where they were staying. Now, many have wondered, is this the upper room where the Last Supper took place? And we're not sure. Uh, We know that Luke uses a different Greek word for the upper room here. Uh, He describes it as the upstairs room. 
but it's certainly a significant place, one that is well known to the early church because he uses the definite article, the. So anybody reading this letter is being told they were at the upper room. So it's very possible this was the place. It was well known to the early church, and as the the folks gathered there, we're given a list of them in verses 13 through 15. The apostles, these uh, 11 that are left, are mentioned. There's Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and, and, his, and with his brothers. It tells us at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. Now, I want you to notice that that last statement is in parentheses, so it's kind of an, a side note. Remember, Luke is laying the foundation for the book. He's giving all this background information, and he mentions that there are 120 that are there. Now, in the Greek text, the words that are all surrounding this are in the masculine form. And if you look at verse 16 in the, the Greek text, what you find is this. It begins by saying, Andres Adelphoi. And uh, Andres is a word that means men in the masculine form only. It speaks only of men. There's another Greek word, anthropos, which can speak of men and women. So if you're talking about a gathering like this today, we would say there was anthropos here. There were men and women. But if you say Andres, you're saying you're counting the men specifically. And so what we have here literally is a translation of men brothers. Brothers is showing us these are believers, but he's telling us specifically there are 120 guys in this gathering. Now, why does he do that? Well, in Jewish law, 120 men were required to form what we would call a quorum to establish uh, the basis for a community gathering. And this is the new gathering called the church. The, the Greek word is ekklesia. It means the called out ones. And so what they are doing is establishing, remember they're in Jerusalem where the temple is. They're in the center. The early church was made up uh, mostly of Jews. And what they're doing is establishing that there is a, uh, enough of a quorum here to establish a new community. He's laying a legal basis for this group that is going to be called the church. Now, there were more than the number that are mentioned here. You'll recall that in the Gospels, we're told that there were more than 500 witnesses who had seen the resurrected Lord. So not every believer is in this gathering, but this is a a significant group. And yet in terms of the amount of people that are there, uh, it's actually a small group when you remember the call is to go into the world and share the gospel worldwide. And so you have this gathering that are located there. Now, as Luke speaks of who is mentioned, he mentions the men. But I want you to notice as well that he makes the statement that women were there as well, that women were there. Now, other than Jesus' mother, Mary, we're not told their names, but from looking at the gospels, we can gather some of the women that would be there. In Luke chapter 8 and verses 2 through 3, we're told that uh, Mary Magdalene, she's the one who had the demons cast out from her. We're told that there was another woman, Joanna, whose husband managed Herod's household. And there was another faithful woman by the name of Susanna. And as you read there in Luke, you see that this was a group of women who had traveled with Jesus all throughout his journeys. 
They were the ones who uh, supported the ministry financially. They took care of others who were there. They were with Jesus throughout the entirety of his public ministry. Uh, these same women, many of them show up again in Luke chapter 24 and verse 10, as well as the addition of Mary, the mother of James. These were the women who went to the tomb that first Easter morning. Remember, they took spices to embalm the body, thinking that Jesus was there. And yet they found the stone rolled away, and they were the first ones to run back and report to the others that the tomb was empty. As we go through Acts, we're going to see that there are a number of women that are mentioned as being very significant in the story of the early church. There's Sapphira, Dorcas, Rhoda, Mary the mother of Mark, Lydia, Priscilla, Demarius, Drusilla, Bernice. These are all women who are mentioned specifically by name who have a part in the story of the early church. And this is, again, significant when you remember that this is the first century And in that day, women were segregated from men. When we see there's a gathering where men and women are together, this was very unusual. Remember, we said this was a new community called the church. And Luke is letting us know that it is going to be different than what has been known before. Uh, Women were segregated from the men in worship, and yet we see they're here together. Women in this day were not given uh, a place of prominence or mentioned in the literature very often. And here we see how often the women are brought forward by Luke as having a significant part in the story. Now, another significant group to see mentioned here are the siblings of Jesus. Uh, If you've read through the Bible, you know that uh, Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. Uh, Sometimes I was raised Roman Catholic, and I was initially taught that Mary was a perpetual virgin. Uh, What the scriptures tell us is that when the Holy Spirit caused the uh, conception of Jesus. That was a miraculous conception. She was a virgin. She had a husband betrothed to her, Joseph, who became the stepfather of Jesus, and he kept her a virgin until her birth. But after that, they were a husband and wife, and they had relations and they had other siblings. We see that in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, where it tells us, is not this the carpenter, that's speaking of Jesus, the son of Mary? And the brother of James and Jose and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And you'll recall as you've read through the Bible that these early, these half-brothers and sisters, they shared Mary as a blood mother and had Joseph as their physical father. And these uh, half-siblings were not believers in Jesus. In fact, it tells us in John 7, 3, for not even his brothers were believing in him. You'll recall that they would mock Jesus. They would say, oh, sure, you're the Messiah. Go down to the temple, show yourself to the people, go do your stuff. They were not believers, and yet here we find them in the gathering of believers. What has happened? What has happened is the resurrection. Remember that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to more than 500 uh, witnesses And among those, uh, there are some mentioned like James. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we're told that James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, Jesus appeared physically to him. And James became not only a believer, but a leader in the early church. And he became uh, the one that was used by God to write the New Testament epistle of James. And so as we see these uh, siblings of Jesus that a month before had not been believers, but now they are among the believers gathered. This, again, is a very significant group to see mentioned there. Now, as I said before, the group size is, is not that significant. 
when you recognize that in Acts 1-8, they were told to start in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, this was a small group to carry out a worldwide evangelistic campaign. Uh, and as we look at who is there, uh, that's not very impressive either. This is not really who we would put together as a group of all-star uh, Christians that we would think would change the world. As we look at the ones that are mentioned there, remember that many of them are not even mentioned by name. We're just told that there was a group of about 120. There were some women there. And other than the apostles and Mary's, uh, the mother of Jesus, those are the only ones we know by name. And of those that we do know by name, uh, that group's not very impressive either. Last week, we spent time looking at uh, Peter and his denial of Jesus and how he had denied Jesus three times and the, the recommissioning, the restoration that took place so that he would be this leader that we see standing up among the people. But you've got, you've got uh, Peter is a failure. You look at the other apostles, there were four fishermen in the group. These were day laborers. These were uneducated men. They were not the type of people that you would think would be able to stand toe-to-toe with the Jewish religious leaders of the day that were denying who Jesus was. Uh, You look in terms of uh, who else is mentioned there. There's Simon the Zealot. In our day, he would be on the terrorist watch list. Uh, when you hear the word zealot, it means he was zealous. But these were, these were a group of outcasts that were battling against Rome. They were, they were doing things to try to overthrow Rome. So you, you have a, a would-be terrorist. And then on the other end of the scale is Matthew the tax collector. Uh, you'll recall that the Jews considered tax collectors the scum of the earth. These were the people who were working with Rome to collect money from the Jews to give to Rome. And so imagine the gathering. You've got, you've got Matthew the tax collector with Simon the zealot. These guys want to kill each other uh, in this early group, and, and here they're gathered. Now, I think that sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that we have to be something special that we have to uh, be um, different than we are to be used by God. We think if I was only smarter, if I was only older, if I was only more popular, you, you fill in the blank of what you think you're, you're lacking, and you say, if I was only these things, then God could use me. Brothers and sisters, as you read through the Bible, what you see is God uses people just like you and me. Ordinary, everyday people that have no extraordinary talents, abilities, or things that set us apart. And what God does is he empowers us with his Holy Spirit. Uh, We're going to see next week that the Holy Spirit came upon the, the believers. But you and I today as New Testament Christians have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he gives to empower everyday people like us to be used to, to do extraordinary supernatural things. And one of the ways that we do that is through prayer. And we see that mentioned here. As we look at verse 14, we see that this group that was gathered was in prayer. It says, these, all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. The Greek word that is used here is homothumadon. So homothumadon means literally with one mind or passion. And uh, you see it here translated as with one accord. And this is an interesting Greek word. It's only found 11 times in the New Testament. And 10 of the 11 times are found in the book of Acts. This is a favorite word of Luke. 
as he describes the gathering of the believers, as he describes the gathering of this diverse group of men and women, he says that they came together with one mind, with one passion. Um, as you, you, you think about what could have happened, I already mentioned Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, but think of the others that are there. This, this group of Christians, as they gather together, could have been jockeying for position. Remember right before the resurrection, at the Last Supper, the, the apostles were still fighting about who was going to be the greatest. And as this group comes together, you could have had those like James, who stood up among the assembly and said, listen, listen. I'm a half-brother of Jesus. I've, I've known Jesus since he was uh, knee-high to a grasshopper. Well, actually, James was younger than Jesus, so it would have been the reverse. But he would have said, I've known, I, I've known Jesus my whole life. And the others gathered there could have countered with, yeah, but you didn't believe in him. We did. We believed in him first. So that discounts it. You could have had John, the beloved apostle, who said, yeah, but at the cross, Jesus looked at me and said, behold your mother. You take care of Mary because he didn't trust you guys to take care of Mary. And then as Peter stands up to speak, somebody could have said, hey, Peter, sit down, sit down. We know you denied Jesus. Something we talked about last week is the reason Jesus recommissioned him publicly. So you could have very easily had, as this group came together, an all-out brawl that took place as they were fighting about who would be the greatest. But the text tells us the opposite happened. It says when they came together, they they came with one mind, with one passion. It's, It's what you see when you look around Wayside Chapel today. If you turn and look in the seat around you, and as you walk the halls and you look at the, the, the people that are here on our property, you'll see that we are different in age, ethnicity, in background, in economics. You go down the list. We are a diverse group of people. But what has happened is we have been brought together with one accord, one mind, one passion, one purpose. We're here together gathered to worship the Lord, to strengthen and encourage one another, to pull together, to reach a dark and dying world, starting locally in our community and going to the uttermost parts of the end of the earth. And this is what the church is. This is what the church began as in Acts chapter 1, and it's what the church is today, 2,000 years later. It's what God does as he draws us together. It's, it's what Jesus prayed for as he left the earth. In John 17, 21, before he, it says that he prayed that they may all be one. He says, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. We just sang the song that they'll know we are Christians by our love. And here we see the foundation that is being laid. And when it comes to, to what is happening, it says they're praying. Now, remember, they're praying together for 10 days, and you're going, I struggle to pray 10 minutes. How how could they come together for 10 days? Now, as we look at what they're doing, they're, they're not just sitting. Sometimes people think prayer is this. We get on our knees, we bow our head, and we whisper to God, and that's prayer. And that certainly can be a posture of prayer. But when you look at prayer that is taking place, here's the Greek word, proskotero. And what it means is to be busy or persistent in activity. And prayer is one of those ways we are to be busy and persistent 
in our activity. If you've ever watched uh, videos of Jews standing at the Western Wall, what some people call the Wailing Wall, as an Orthodox Jew prays, you see them doing something like this, right? Because they're, they're being active, they're being persistent. They think prayer is not just sitting still. And so when it comes to prayer, it's not just what we do in terms of talking with God and as this word is used. Later in Luke chapter 2 and verse 42, the same word is used. And there it says of the new converts who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's what you're doing right now. As you're listening to the Bible being taught, uh, it's a posture of prayer. It's not just you speaking to God, but it's you listening to God as God's word is opened up to you. It's used in Acts 6-4 where it says the apostles gave priority to praying and preaching God's word. So as they gathered together, they, they were not only actively praying, but we see they were doing other things. Things like we see in verse 15. There it says Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. Now the word for stood up is a word that speaks of a formal speech. In this case, a sermon that is given. So Peter gives a sermon, and as he speaks, you would think that what he's going to talk about is the ascension of Jesus. Remember, only the 11 apostles were gathered on the Mount of Olives. Uh, You would think that as this gathering is there, Peter is going to come back and say, brothers and sisters, let me tell you about what we just saw. Let me tell you about the ascension of the Lord. But instead, he preaches a different sermon. He, he goes back and he speaks about the betrayal of Jesus, as you see in verses 16 through 20. He says, Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. This is King David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us, and he received his share of the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, the field was called Hecadelma, that is the field of blood. That's a great sermon, isn't it? And he says, for it was written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let, him dwell, let no one dwell in it, and let another take his office. Now, as we look at what is being said here, uh, again, remember, we have the, the, the letter that is being written, but it's also giving bits of background. And so there's an aside that is given because verses 18 through 19 uh, don't appear to be a part of Peter's speech. Because what he's doing here, and I say that because remember that you, you hear me say that the, the New Testament is written in Greek, and it was, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there's also Aramaic that is found in the Bible. And the everyday language of the day was Aramaic. Peter would have spoken Aramaic. Those gathered here would have spoken Aramaic. Later, we're going to see in the book of Acts where it says that everybody was hearing uh, the gospel in their own language when that uh, gift of tongues that we're going to talk about came down and what that specifically means. So here, there's no need for them to translate an Aramaic word, which is uh, what you see here. Hecodema, in verse 19, means field of blood. Well, everybody would have known that. Uh, but because Luke is writing to a broader audience, which includes Gentiles, he, he steps to the side for a moment and tells what it means. The other thing he does here is he gives a little bit of background on the death of Judas. 
If you were not a part of the early church, if you were not following Jesus, if you didn't know the story, you have no idea who this guy named Judas is. Now, remember in Acts one thirteen, we saw that there was one of the 11 apostles named Judas, the son of James. There was more than one Judas. There was Judas Iscariot is the guy who denied Jesus. Now, that name Iscariot, Ish is the, the root that means man, and Iscariot literally means man from Kirioth. It was a city. So they're designating the different Judases. Judas Iscariot, the one who denied and betrayed Jesus, that guy was Judas from the town of Kirioth. And this is who's being talked about here. Uh, he was a part of the original 12 that were chosen by Jesus. And what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll recall Jesus was gathered there in prayer. And Judas Iscariot had gone to the Jewish authorities. And he had said, for 30 pieces of silver, I will betray the Lord. I will lead you to where he is. And so the religious leaders paid the price of 30 pieces of silver to Judas. He led them to the Garden of Gethsemane. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss. They arrested Jesus before his crucifixion. They took him, and then the the trials took place, like we saw last week where Peter denied Jesus in the, the garden where one of the trials was taking place. And what happens here is after Judas denied Jesus, you'll recall that he, he felt remorse. He didn't repent. He felt remorse. He felt bad. You can read Matthew chapter 27 in verses 3 through 10. And it talks about how Judas went back to the religious leaders. And he said, here's your 30 pieces of silver back. And they said, hey, we don't want it. That's your money. <laughs> you did the dirty deed. You betrayed Jesus. That's your cash. Judas said, I don't want it. And he threw the money into the temple. And uh, then he went out, Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, 5, and it says, Judas hung himself. I want you to remember that because what, what is happening here is some people will look at Luke's account in Acts and they'll look at Matthew chapter 27 and they say, see, you can't trust the Bible because it contradicts itself. Uh, remember, Luke has told us Judas fell forward and burst and all his intestines and everything came out. And yet Matthew says he hung himself. And I'm going into this background because I want you to understand how you can harmonize the scriptures. So many times people come up against somebody and they say, well, you can't trust the Bible because there's a contradiction. And they'll go to a passage like this and, and people go, I don't know how to answer it. I guess you're right. The Bible does contradict itself. So I want to walk you through how these two passages come together just for a moment so that you can have confidence and also defend your faith. When we look at what happened, remember Judas gave the money back to the religious leaders. He threw it on the floor when they wouldn't take it, and then he left and killed himself. Now, the money's laying there on the temple floor. And what Matthew tells us is the priests came along and they picked up all the money. And they had taken it out of the temple treasury to start with, but they said, this is blood money. It's betrayal money. It was used to buy the life of a man in the betrayal. So we can't put this tainted money back in the church treasury, so to speak. So what are we going to do with it? And they said, well, let's go out and buy a field. It's called the potter's field because people would go out there and dig the clay up to make pots in that day, which meant there were a bunch of depressions. And it became known as the potter's field where they would bury people because you kind of had graves almost already dug, and they would put uh, indigent people who had no land to be buried in this. So they went and bought a community field to serve the community with this money. 
That's why it's called the field of blood, not because Judas died there. Now, in terms of who bought the field, the, Luke tells us that Judas acquired it. But Matthew tells us that the priest bought it. So which one happened? Well, both did. You see, because when the priest went and bought the field, whose money were they using? It's Judas' money. They paid it to him. He earned it through his betrayal. They didn't want it back. It still belonged to Judas. So when they bought the field, uh, it's accurate to say Judas acquired it because it was his money, even though he didn't personally uh, go and sign a paper and buy the field. And the other way that we harmonize the passage is we're told that uh, Matthew says Judas hung himself. So I want to illustrate it this way for you. I've got a beanbag in my hand here, okay? So I want you to watch closely. Did you see that? Let me do it again. Okay? Now, if I were to ask you to describe for me what you just saw, one of you might say, well, Roger was holding a beanbag, right? Now, another person might come along and say, well, a beanbag dropped at Roger's foot. And he doesn't say anything about Roger holding the beanbag first. Is that a contradiction? No. It's two different witnesses describing two different parts of the same event. So you have Matthew, who is writing. Remember, the, you have four Gospels. And the reason for that is God gave different witnesses to different people for different purposes. And the Gospel of Matthew was Matthew was a Jew who was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And if you were a Jew, uh, the Deuteronomic law is very important to you. And as you read, Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. It's in the Old Testament. And in the book of Deuteronomy, what it tells us is, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Uh, that's in Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So if you were a Jew writing to Jews, you would want to emphasize the fact that, that Judas dying on a tree uh, was very significant. Now Luke is a Gentile, and Luke is writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. And remember as well that Luke is a doctor. Uh, there are doctors among us. And if you've ever talked to a doctor about uh, physical things, they get into all kinds of nitty-gritty, don't they? things that you're kind of going, uh, I don't understand, or why is that interesting? Well, when a body dies, uh, what will happen is the intestines can distend, the body can bloat, it can, it can swell up. And if you've ever seen a, a dead animal on the side of the road that's been hit, you know it starts to blow up, and what eventually happens to it? You know, it'll, it'll explode. I hate to be gross, but I'm just preaching the word here. He tells us that happened, right? <laughs> So you've got a doctor, Luke, who's writing. Matthew the Jew emphasizes that Judas went out and hung himself. That indeed happened. Luke picks up the second part of the story. He doesn't tell us uh, whether it was because the rope broke, the tree branch broke, or as they lowered the body of Judas, uh, when it hit the ground, it broke. All the text says is when it fell forward, it burst. So you have this, this deceased decedent whose body has bloated, and when it hits the ground, it bursts open. Is that a contradiction? No. It's just the second part of the story in terms of what is being emphasized. So Luke, as a doctor, loves these little details that he weaves throughout the story. Now, in terms of what is happening, the focus here is not so much on the death of Judas. 
what he's getting to, as you remember, he says the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Look at verse 16 again. It says the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, when it says they had to be fulfilled, uh, the Greek word that is used here is day. Uh, it means literally had to, but it speaks of logical or divine necessity. So as Peter is preaching, and remember, he's not just giving his opinion here. It says he's being led by who? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is leading him, and he's interpreting. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the author of the Word of God. He used men to write the text, but the Holy Spirit superintended the writing. And that includes the Old Testament. The Old Testament Psalms were written, many of them, by King David. So when it speaks of what David wrote, he's quoting from two Old Testament Psalms here. And is, what he's saying is, let me interpret for you what the Bible says. Now, you may be saying, oh, oh, wait a minute, Roger, I got you. Because you keep telling us that in Acts chapter 2 is when the Holy Spirit comes. Now, we're in Acts chapter 1, so which one is it? How, how can, how can uh, Peter be being led by the Holy Spirit if he doesn't already have the Holy Spirit? Well, he does have the Holy Spirit already. Because as you read in John chapter 20, verse 22... There it says, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. John 20 tells us Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. They already had the Holy Spirit. And now some of you are going, I'm confused. There's a big word called dispensationalism. We'll talk about it next week. So come back next week as we talk about dispensationalism. But what dispensationalism talks about is how God works at different ways, at different specific ages and stages in the the way that he operates. And in the, the day of Pentecost is seen as the birth of the church. The, it's a new age. It's a new way that God is going to operate. And when he gives the Holy Spirit, it's not just to a few. Uh, he used to give the Holy Spirit to kings or prophets. And the Holy Spirit could be withdrawn. Remember when, when David prayed, do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. And so God would give a special anointing for a special purpose. And when the Holy Spirit comes, well, I've already given it to you all now. So when the Holy Spirit comes in the, in the, the day of Pentecost, it's for a new purpose. It's given to everyone, not just specific people. And it's given permanently. It won't be withdrawn. And it's given for the purpose, as we're going to see there, of filling and empowering and baptizing them into one body in Christ called the church. And so he already has the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit that is interpreting the Bible. In Luke chapter 24, verse 45, it says, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The Holy Spirit is saying uh, this Old Testament psalm that was written, one of the royal psalms, has New Testament application. Judas' name isn't ever mentioned there, but we see the fulfillment. Uh, the two places that Peter is quoting for there in Acts that you see in all capital letters in many of your Bibles is from Psalm 109.8. There it says that another would take his place. Did that happen to Judas? Judas had been one of the original 12. He was removed, and we're about to see that a new man would be appointed to take his place. That's a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. When it says in Psalm 69.25, what we find there is the judgment that would befall Judas. And we just read about that. Judas died. 
Now, as God shows the fulfillment of what was revealed in the past, it shows that they don't have to worry about what's coming. These, these are, are men that are, remember, in the midst of all kinds of things happening. They were asking earlier in Acts 1, when is the kingdom going to come? They're watching Jesus go, and they're going, when's he coming back? And what, what is happening is, as the church is gathering, and there's excitement but confusion and fear, and Jesus is gone, and what's happening, what they're saying is, God's in control. He's got this. None of this is taking him by surprise. Even before uh, Jesus was betrayed by Judas, Jesus knew this would happen. Some people have said, well, I thought Jesus was perfect, that he never made a mistake. So how did he choose Judas, who would then turn around and betray him? Well, that was all part of the divine plan. You have the sovereignty of God at work with the free will of Judas who wanted something. Remember, this is the guy that was stealing money out of the bag and he was doing all these things and he was, he was seeking to enrich himself. And so these, these things came together to be used by God. Jesus knew it would happen. He said in John seventeen twelve, And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that's Judas, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, speaking of this Old Testament prophecy. Now, as God's plan is going forward, that includes the heavenly kingdom that we saw in Acts 1, 6. Remember, they were saying, when is the kingdom coming? And Jesus had spoken about that earlier as well. I want you to flip over to Matthew chapter 19. As you look at Matthew 19 and verse 27 and 28, this is what we're told. Uh, Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? So in Matthew 19, 27, Peter was asking, Hey, Jesus, we've given up everything. We've been with you from the beginning. We've been traveling with you. We've sacrificed on and on. And he's going, when's payday? When, when do we get something for what we're doing? And Jesus said to them in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, them, the disciples, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones. Underline twelve if you write in your Bible. You shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now he's speaking of this new entity called the church, remember? And you have the twelve tribes of Israel. The church does not replace Israel in God's plan, but it has a part in it. And so you have this new entity of the leaders of the church that will merge and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you had the original 12 disciples. Judas betrayed Jesus, and he's gone. So how many do you have left? 12 minus 1 equals? Now, how many thrones are there? So we're missing one, right? Okay. Now, this is what we see happening in Acts 121 through 26. You can turn back there. Therefore, it is necessary. Do you remember that word necessary? Day, had to. So Peter is saying, okay, we've got a problem. God said there's this plan. And he says, therefore, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us, accompanied us all that time. Remember, Jesus told Peter, those of you guys who have been with me from the beginning... So he says, somebody who has accompanied us all of that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, this is John the Baptist's baptism in the river, until the day that he was taken up from us, 
just happened on the Mount of Olives, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. Those are the Greek and uh, Latin names and other things. So this guy is the same guy with three names. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Do you see what happened? You've got 11 guys. You need one more. Now, there were some, remember, the women were following Jesus all that time. They had been a part of the group, but he says, we need to appoint a man. And there were two candidates, two guys who could fill this spot. Now, some will tell you, remember, later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, there's a guy by the name of Saul who became named Paul after he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he became an apostle. Do you remember what we saw one of the requirements of an apostle is? that he, he has seen the resurrected Lord physically. And so some people say, you see, Peter, Peter was this guy who was really rash, and he made a mistake. He went ahead and appointed an apostle to fill the hole when God had another guy coming named Paul. So now we end up with Paul, and this guy named Matthias shouldn't have been an apostle. But that's not what's happening either. Who's guiding the whole process? Do you remember? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is leading this whole uh, event. And when it comes to uh, the appointment of Paul later, there's a reason for that. Remember, we're laying the foundation of the church here. And as you read Ephesians 2.20, it tells us about the foundation of the church. It tells us in Ephesians 2.20, it is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There were 12 apostles needed to fill the 12 thrones, as we saw in Matthew 19, 28. This happens again in Luke twenty-two thirty, where Jesus said to the uh, disciples, you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Another foundational passage of the church and the future is found in Revelation twenty-one fourteen. There it says, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles and the Lamb. Is Judas' name going to be inscribed on the, the heavenly city in heaven? Is Judas going to be in heaven? No. Friends, Judas is not in hell because he committed suicide. We don't have time to go into the totality of what the Bible teaches about suicide. But the bottom line is the scriptures say there's only one unforgivable sin. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. While suicide is a tragic uh, death and it, it is something that people do and they, they try to, uh, I say that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. They feel pain. They want to escape something. But it doesn't lead to the person going to hell. The only thing that puts somebody in hell is a rejection of Jesus Christ. And Judas is one who rejected Jesus. He was with Jesus, but he had never come to faith in him as the Messiah, as the Savior. And that's why Judas is said to be in hell. So Judas's name is not inscribed in heaven. You have the 11 guys we already read about, and now this new one whose name will be inscribed there. Now, in terms of this other guy named Paul that I mentioned to you earlier, 
This is what Paul says of his own apostleship. In Romans 1.5, Paul says, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Remember, the Bible says the gospel went to the Jew first and then the Gentile. You have the 11, now 12 apostles again, that are going to speak of the resurrection. They are in Jerusalem, the capital of, you know, Rome is occupying at the moment. But this is, they're speaking to the Jew first. Paul will come along later. Uh, he says in Galatians 1.16, God revealed his son in me so that I may preach him among the Gentiles. You see, Paul is an apostle, but he's not part of this original 12 where Matthias is now being added in. This is no mistake. What God says is, again, I'm in control. I have a plan to reach the Jew and the Gentile. And Paul is going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. Now, as I said, in this gathering, we have two men who fit all the requirements. And as Peter and the others are trying to determine which of these men God had chosen, we see the process is similar to what happened when Jesus chose the original 12. And Luke six twelve through 13, it says, Jesus had spent the night in prayer before he chose. What, are, what is the gathered group of believers doing at this moment? They're praying. They're asking God, God, would you reveal your choice to us? In Acts one twenty four, it says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. I love the Greek word here. It's kardionosta, which literally means heart knower. He says, God, you know the hearts of these men. It's going to show up again in Acts 15.8. There it says, And God who knows the heart. Do you remember what God's uh, standards are for choosing a leader? Back when King David was chosen, Samuel was there to anoint. He's looking at all the sons as they're paraded by, and he's impressed by the size and stature of some of them. And the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel sixteen seven, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, those gathered, you have, you have two guys, men who have been with Jesus, men who have served faithfully, and they're saying, we think they're both great candidates, but God, you're the guy who knows their heart. Would you show us which one of these two you've chosen? And so they get the two guys, they put them face to face, and they go, okay, rock, paper, scissors, ready? Is that, is that what the text says? No. And we're thinking, well, it's just as good. It says they threw lots. I mean, they, they cast dice or pulled a card out. What was that all about? Well, again, remember this big word, dispensationalism. God operates in different ways. Uh, at the time, God said that he would reveal things through the casting of lots. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, if you're thinking, okay, well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to flip a coin or pull a card out or do something on my next decision, may I point out to you this is the very last time in all of the Bible that lots were ever cast to discern God's will? Because, again, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 2, God has a new way of guiding and directing us, which is through his Holy Spirit. And I wish we could spend more time there, but we'll come back to it next week. Instead, what I want to focus on is verse 26 as we end. It says, the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 disciples. Now, I want you to think about that other guy named Joseph. It came down to you and the other guy, and suddenly he's chosen. And what does the text tell us? 
Does it say, he said, hey, I demand a recount. I don't, I don't like the, the results of the election here. Or, or does it say he took his ball and went home, that he said, well, if I can't have the title of an apostle, I quit, I'm leaving. No, it doesn't tell us anything. Which tells us that he was just like the other hundred plus faithful men and women who were gathered there that we don't even know their names. What it says is they serve God faithfully. They said, we don't have to have a title. We don't have to have special mention. We're going to go and do what God has called us to do. And that's what God calls us to do today. He calls us to be those who are a part of the church, to fulfill the commission of Acts 1-8, to go and teach and baptize and spread the good news of the gospel, starting in our Jerusalem in San Antonio and moving out to our Judea and our Samaria into Bear County and beyond, and to go to the uttermost parts of the earth as we go worldwide with the good news of the gospel. And if you're sitting here today saying, kind of like Peter did way back, and he said, yeah, but Lord, what's in it for me? If you're worried about that, I want you to listen to Hebrews 6.10. Because there it tells us, for God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. What God says is, I know what you're doing. And I have a place for you in heaven And there will be rewards for you in heaven. As we end today, I want you just to to bow your head for a moment and ask God, what does God want you to do? What is God's part for you in building his church? What does God have for you to do as as it relates to sharing the good news of the gospel? Just take a moment to, to think about that. And then I want to close this in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you, God, that you loved us enough to leave heaven and to come to earth, to go to the cross and die, to pay that penalty of death that I and the others here owed for our sins. We thank you, God, not only for the place you've given us in your family to be a part of your kingdom, but also, Lord, for the privilege we have of being a part of your plan to spread the good news of the gospel here, near, and far. So, Lord God, we commit our lives anew to you today. We ask that you would use us individually and as a church to continue to share the good news of the gospel here in San Antonio and beyond to the uttermost parts of the earth. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.